0: Hello, everybody. (laughs) Amen. (laughs) Glad you're here. And I'm glad to be here. I've been on vacation for a little bit, so haven't been up here for a while. So I'm looking forward to being with you. We are in a series right now as you turn to the book of Revelation, it's the last book in the Bible. Um, we are in a series right now entitled, Behold Our Savior. And we just wanted to take four weeks looking at Jesus. The Bible promises that um, we are more changed. We find greater joy um, when we see more of Him than when we see more of ourselves. So what we really... What I really want to do is just to put forward who Jesus is a beautiful, wonderful Savior. And so we have uh, talked about how He is pursuing His Father's glory. We talked about last week how He is merciful. Uh, this week, as we look at Revelation chapter 5, we will look and see at how He is majestic and that He is both lion and lamb. So we'll be in Revelation 5 looking at those things. Uh, two, next week, uh, Travis will be preaching on the coming of Jesus, and then we'll have a two short week series on uh, family on mission, on just pursuing community together, and then we'll be in the book of 1 John for a while. So looking forward to that, and so you guys can, uh, in your own personal times, can be uh, spending time in the Word in ways that would encourage you here on Sunday mornings as well. So let's read together Revelation chapter 5 as we look at how Jesus is both lion and lamb. We read verses 1 through 10. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one at the end of each row. Um, Poke your neighbor on the shoulder so you can follow along. The Word of God says this. Then I saw in the right hand of Him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy? to open the scroll and break its seals. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I, that's John, the author, I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, "'Weep no more.'" Worthy are You to take the scroll and to open its seals. For You were slain, and by Your blood You ransomed people for God from every nation, every tribe and language and people and nation. And You have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray that as You give us a small... Glimpse into the glory that is the day when your children will see you face to face. When you give us a glimpse, I pray, O oh God, that we would stand in awe of you as both lion and lamb. That we would see you as both majestic and powerful and worthy of all reverence and fear and And as a lamb, gentle and tender, merciful, sacrificial, even for sinners. And so I pray that You would leap off the page and there would be something so shocking that would happen in our time that You would get bigger, we would decrease, our joy level would rise, our faith would would grow, and we would have hope as we leave. Because in Your lamb-like ways... You are near to the brokenhearted and you save the crushed in spirit. So please comfort where there is comfort needed. Please admonish where there is admonishment needed. Please build up where people feel teared down, torn down. Please come alongside where people are lonely. Show yourself as strong and stable as you are. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, early on in uh, TCC's history, that's Treasure in Christ Church, we shorten it. Um, In TCC's history, I went to Chiang Mai, Thailand. And we went there to encourage some of the international workers that had been sent out from TCC. And while we were there, we not only spent time encouraging the workers that were there, but we also wanted to get to know the culture. So, there's a part of Chiang Mai where as you go, there is an elephant village where these elephants have been trained to um, just do all kinds of amazing things. They were playing soccer. They were painting pictures. That, I mean, you would ride them like you would a horse. I mean, it, it was intense. So we go to this elephant village, and I walk in, and the very first thing, when you walk into the door, or not the door, but when you walk up to this opening like gate thing, they say, why don't you come over here? And so I was curious as to why. And so we come over here, and as you turn the corner, you see this massive elephant. I mean, these things are beasts. And you see this trunk wrapped around a person's waist, like he's giving it a hug. And so I have a picture of myself being hugged by Mr. Elephant. Okay? So here's the deal. I don't know if you know much about elephants, but they're, this is a small one overall, and I feel very dwarfed. So, in their trunks, they have over 100,000 muscles and tendons. They can rip trees out of the ground with just their trunk. Okay? And they can carry up to 400 pounds with their trunk. I weigh about 180 It would be nothing for this trunk to just squeeze and I would be no more. And yet, in a sharp moment of stupidity, I walk over to this elephant and this little guy over here, he just waves his arm and this elephant, which was just kind of having a a trunk that had a mind of its own, all of a sudden goes... And it comes across me, and at that moment, I don't know if you can tell, this hand is lightly kind of on this trunk with a lot of trembling. (laughs) There is this strong sense that at any moment I could die. And yet, for some weird reason, I'm happy. And I want this picture. Like, I volunteered for this, okay? And I began to just be reminded... Of just what majesty and what gentleness was expressed by that moment. And when Jesus is described in the Scriptures as both a lion and a lamb, He is both. When we behold our Savior, we are beholding Him as a lion, majestic, powerful. We should stand in awe at any moment. He could crush us, and He is also at the exact same time a lamb. Gentle, tender, merciful, loving. And so as we look in the Scriptures here, we're just going to take this time to understand our great God because He is both. He is the hurricane force winds that could decimate a city and He is also the gentle breeze that cools you off on a 90 degree day. He is both. He has that kind of power and majesty. And so... As we look at Revelation chapter 5, I had read this passage over and over for many years, but I remember the first time I was kind of exposed to this kind of tension, a lion and a lamb all in one. It was from reading the book Seeing and Savoring Savoring Jesus Christ by John Piper. And he began to bring those tensions before my eyes. Then I began to read another man named Jonathan Edwards, who also um, began to express those tensions for me even deeper. And then I realized recently that so many people have been talking about these tensions for years. I had just been reading Revelation 5, and it never really had jolted me as it had before. And so now as we go through Revelation 5, we're going to let this passage be the outline for what we do today. Now, the easy way to kind of do this is to say, okay, Jesus is a lion. And so you talk about how He's a lion, and then you kind of apply it. Here's what this means for your life. And then you could say, Jesus is a lamb, and then you talk about how He's a lamb, and then you apply it to your life. My fear there is this that if you're anything like me, you forget what kind of happens first. Maybe not at the beginning, but you might forget the middle. And so what I wanted to do is I wanted to have a healthy dose of lion and lamb. Lion and lamb. So that you don't begin to separate. He is one and then another. What God calls a glorious juxtaposition. They're meant to be brought together in closeness. And so that's how the the sermon will go. We'll highlight one, then we'll come with another. We'll highlight lion, we'll come with lamb, and we'll just go back and forth through that. And then hopefully applying it to our lives to see how we approach him and how we imitate him. So let's look at it together. Revelation chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. Verses 1 through 10. Now, immediately. You might have heard as I was reading some language that sounded a little sketchy, you know, um, some seven horns and uh, some, you know, seven eyes, and all of a sudden you're, you're getting a little weirded out, especially if you've never read the Bible before, you think this is all it is, I think I should leave. Well, I'm glad you're still here, and what this is is what's called apocalyptic literature. It's a genre, kind of like poetry or narrative. Apocalyptic literature is a literature that is written with a lot of symbolism. So in the book of Revelation, it is written at a time when Christians were persecuted by Nero in the government of Rome. And so this letter, this book is written in such a way that it is clearer to the believers, but a little more cryptic to the persecutors. And so the... The language is meant to be understood in symbolic ways. And a lot of this imagery, a lot of the the numbers, they are given definition in the Old Testament, which a pagan Roman culture would not have fully grasped. So... Let's look at the beginning. It says, verse 1, "...then I saw in the right hand of Him..." Who's the I? It's written by John. The Apostle John, one of the twelve, but he was also one of the inner three um, who was really near to the Savior's heart. Church history actually says that John, as most of the apostles were uh, martyred, they were killed for their faith. That history goes that John was actually... they tried to boil him for his faith, and He survived. And so because they felt like they couldn't kill him, they exiled him to the island of Patmos. And it's this island from which he writes the book of Revelation. Now, the book of Revelation is a large yet small kind of window into what's to come. The reason I say it that way is because he is seeing things beyond himself, which is larger than life, that, that is, being in the presence of God and His glory, and yet He is articulating it with limited language. And so in that way, it's smaller than the reality is, and yet He's seeing a time when all things will be made right. And so, we look here, and the, the picture is that God is on His throne. Who's on the throne? The King is on the throne. The one with all authority is on the throne. God the Father is on the throne, and He has a scroll in His hand, and it's written within and on the back, and sealed with seven seals. Now, scrolls back then, written on the inside and on the back, it's kind of this double-layered scroll, which meant it was all the contents were written on the inside, and then a summary of those contents were written on the outside. And so then, it was rolled up and it was sealed. Documents like a will. The last will and testament, they were written with this kind of documentation. Something so important, like what's going to happen after I die, was written with this kind of a special document. And now this document is taken and it's rolled and it is sealed with seven seals. The number seven... In the book of Revelation is, is a number of completion and fullness. So it is talking about a seal that is so complete and so full that nothing can break it open. And this is why, in verse 2, it says this, And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, The call is going out to everyone. Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break those full, complete seals? And it says on verse 3, "...and no one in heaven or on earth..." Chapter 4, let us end it. There were elders there that were giving praise to God. There were creatures there giving praise to God. And he's saying no one in heaven or on earth could be found to break open this seal. And so in verse 4, John begins to weep loudly because no one was found worthy, honorable enough, beautiful enough to open the scroll or look into it. Now, when I read this, it, it hit me lightly, but the more I thought on it, I'm like, why, is, why would he cry? Well, the picture is this. The picture is like you have a child who has fallen into the water and this child cannot swim and is drowning. But you can't swim either. And when that child falls in, you cannot rescue this child. And so what do you do? You scream out, come, help, somebody rescue the child while the child is drowning right before you. And when no one comes at that moment, you weep and you weep loudly. The picture is God's salvation plan. His rescuing of sinners. All wrapped up in here. Who has the authority to stand in the place of sinners and rescue them? Who has the authority to deliver them and to bring them to Christ at the end of all things? Who has the authority to render the salvation plan effective? And he looks around and there's not a soul. And we're all condemned to a sinner's hell. We're all condemned to death. And he weeps loudly, and then someone stands up. And one of the elders, verse 5, says this, Weep no more, for behold, look, gaze into the Lion of Judah. The root of David has conquered. The devil has not won. Death doesn't have a sting for those who trust in Jesus. The sacrifice has been paid. The lion has conquered his enemies and has put everything under his feet. There is one worthy, one worthy to open the scroll and to say this plan is going to happen. A plan of salvation for sinners. That sinners could be in the midst of a perfect and holy, beautiful God forever and ever and find joy like they could never imagine. Suffering being wiped away and being in the presence of our glorious God. It will happen. Because the lion is there. Weep no more, John. Because the lion of Judah is there. Jesus is that lion. Jesus is here described as a lion. Now, you've got to understand, I'm not here to insult your intelligence at all, but I do have to say something because it's necessary to understand it's not a one to one. Jesus is not a lion, meaning he is not a furry animal, okay? And he is not a lamb, that he is woolly and stupid. Which means everything about these animals are not meant to be thrown upon Jesus. Okay? But when you wake up and a lion is in your face, what do you think? You think power, majesty, you think might, you think awe and fear. This is the picture the Bible gives of a lion Genesis 49 says that this picture of a lion it's a prophetic picture it's a picture that promises that a savior will come and when it talks about the savior it talks about it as a lion and that lion is strong and mighty in numbers 23 a lion is called majestic this is what a lion is lions are at the top of the food chain so to speak when you call somebody lion hearted, what do you mean? You mean they're bold, they're courageous. These are the images that are meant to come forth. Our Savior is majestic and powerful. He is in His essence, He is ultimate authority. He has conquered all things, everything is under Him, He is over everything. What He says you should do, and you should stand in awe of Him. Later on in the scriptures, the lion is even described in Deuteronomy 33 as one who is able to punish his enemies. And he is, the lion is described in this way one who rips off the arm and the head. We're talking about severe justice over enemies. However, our God is not unjustly severe. He doesn't just pop off in anger. He doesn't get frustrated because He's in control of all things. The Bible talks about Him as a lamb-like lion, one who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. But nonetheless, He is a lion, majestic in all His ways. And this is meant to cultivate... In us as a people, what is known as the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord. Many of you would think that any God that has to operate by fear is not good. Well, we will get to there. But what we have to understand is great things are promised for those who fear the Lord, who stand in awe of Him, who are in respect of Him. It's like this. You've seen the movie or you've read the books, probably Chronicles of Narnia. In The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, there's this famous part where one asks about Aslan. And the question is posed, is Aslan safe? And the reply comes back "It says, no, he's not safe, but he's good. And that picture is meant to be how we understand our God. A sense of shock and awe at Him as a lion and yet a unique kind of beautiful, strange attraction to that might. If you ever read the book or watched the movie, they were drawn to Aslan because of his might and power and strength. And yet there were moments where it was just... Awe, reverence, kind of being taken aback. Our God is a lion. It is meant to evoke fear, jaw-dropping wonder awe, respect, and reverence for Jesus because He is so glorious. He is wholly other. There are only shadows that compare to Him. He alone is the substance. He is the perfect picture of toughness and majesty and strength and competence and authority. And because He is so glorious, tell me what you would do if right now, as I'm talking, a lion walks right down this aisle you would get up and you would run that way. Or if you're over here, you would panic because He's really close to you. (laughs) What would you do? There is an appropriate sense of awe and fear and gravity that is supposed to come over you when you think about a holy God with whom there is no sin and everything is at His dispensing. And He is the only one who can really wear the label of great and greatest. And yet, the Scriptures say He is also a lamb. And look at it with me. Verse 6, And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb Standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. What do you think of when you just, when the image of lamb comes right to you? What do you think of? You think of gentle. You think of meek. You think of, maybe if you've read the Old Testament, you think of sacrificial. This is the image that's meant to come up as we think about a lamb, one who is tender and merciful. But what does it say about the Lamb here in this text? Look at it. I saw a Lamb, and the Lamb was what? Standing as though it had been slain. Now, I don't know about you, but that doesn't make sense to me. When someone is killed, they do not stand. They fall. And they fall limp. They're dead on the ground. This lamb looked slain and yet was standing upright. It's the resurrection. It's a Christ who died for sinners, sacrificially gave Himself over so that the wrath that we deserve should be spared, and now He has been raised from the dead three days later so that anyone who would trust in Him can be saved and have Him live inside of them to give them the power to overcome what is in their life and secure an eternity for them forever. He is a Lamb that is standing although having been slain. And this lamb, it says it has seven horns. You might think this lamb is sacrificial and this lamb is really good, but is this lamb powerful? And does this lamb know everything? Well, John shows that he is all those things. The seven horns, horns were a symbol of might and strength like a ram's horn. There was power with it. And seven again is completeness and fullness. So He is complete power. And then you have seven eyes, which eyes look out and they reach to the ends of the earth, it says. This God, there isn't anything He cannot see. It is an image of full knowledge of everything. There's nothing that He does not know, if you'll take that double negative. He knows everything. And so he's fully good, he's fully powerful, he knows all things. This is the slain lamb who is now standing before them. And what does it cause these people to do? Look at the text. And when this Savior he comes in as a lion and a lamb, and he grabs the seal, and he is or the scroll, he is able to open it, and the people fall on their face and they say, with a new song, verse nine. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain, that's the Lamb, and by your shed blood you bought a people. You can't earn your way into God's favor, you had to be bought and purchased. That's why your salvation and my salvation totally hinges upon Jesus being a Lamb. He's got to die in our place because we couldn't buy ourselves out of it. Not enough money, not enough good deeds. We could not get ourselves out of the debt that our sin incurs. And yet they're singing this song because the Lamb went forth, shed His blood, that a people might be His. And not just a few people that look the same. A people from every tribe and language and people and nation. And He will render them as victors and they will stand as kingdom and priests. And they'll reign on the earth just like we sung, Behold our God. This Savior is a lion and a lamb. And now, some of you might be tempted. And I get this way sometimes, especially if I'm down on myself. I feel like I've failed a lot. I might be tempted to contemplate Jesus as a lion. One who is aggressive and firm I might get this picture that He might be against me. And so therefore, that's what He is in these moments. But there's something you need to understand. Jesus isn't part-time lion and part-time lamb. He is 100% at all times fully lion and fully lamb. He doesn't stop being tender, nor does He stop being majestic and glorious. He's not 65% one and 35% another. He is 100% all the time fully lion, fully lamb, fully majestic, fully worthy, fully tender, fully merciful. That's who He is to us. And it is that glorious lion and lamb that we read about as we continue to read on in the book of Revelation. It even says in Revelation 6 that this Lamb, this lamb is to be feared. So much so because the enemies of God are seen. And remember, the enemies of God, when, when that is used, it's many of you might say, I'm not an enemy of God. I'm not against God. But you have to understand, enemies of God are those who are sinful and do not say that Jesus is their only hope to be rescued from their sin. If you do not trust in Jesus alone for the forgiveness of your sins, you are called an enemy rather than a child. So we're not talking about just the the angry-spirited people that might shake their fist at God. We're talking about anybody who has traded God for any other person or thing at any time in your life, which, by the way, is everyone... Except for those who in humility and contrition call out and say, I cannot save myself. I need a Savior to rescue me. And you can be saved. But this Lamb is said in Revelation 6. It says, We're the enemies of God. They call to the mountains and the rocks and they say, Fall on us and hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. I would have expected the wrath of the lion. But Jesus is really clear to be seen as both. To be seen as both. And it is really helpful for us to understand that our sins, sins that must be covered by the grace of God, that they deserve just wrath and just punishment. And anyone who does not turn and trust in Jesus will spend an eternity separated in a sinner's hell because they will get the just wrath of the lion upon them. Now, those words don't come out easily. I don't want you to think that at all. But we have to understand, if you're new to church or new to Christianity, you might think that's kind of harsh. But you might even say, I don't want that kind of God. But I really think you do. I really think you want a God of justice. Here's why. I want to read a quote from John Piper, and he says this. Actually, with his biting language, with the biting language or the severity of Jesus, it is a form of love that corresponds with the real world of corruption and the dullness of our heart and the magnitude of what is at stake in our choices. If there were no great evils and no deaf hearts and no eternal consequences, perhaps the only fitting forms of love would be soft touch and tender words. But such a world does not kill the Son of God and hate His disciples. There is no such world." Our world is corrupt. Our world is filled with evils. Evils that lead to pain and abuse and difficulty. And every single person wants justice for those things. Our Savior is a lion. He is perfectly just in all His ways. He cannot be anything else. Therefore, John Piper goes on to say, in other words, instead of being amazed that sinful humans perish, be amazed that you haven't. Unbelievers should fear. Believers should stand amazed. Stand amazed at the promise that says this. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. This is Psalm 34, verse 10 or 9 and 10. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. You don't lack anything when you fear the Lord. He says, Those who seek the Lord lack no good thing, nothing good for you do you lack. And the scriptures go on to say, in case you think he's just a lion, he's a lamb who, although we deserve his wrath, he comes in and he takes the wrath for us, so that this promise of Psalm thirty four eighteen could be ours when he says the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and he saves the crushed in spirit. Is that you? O broken-hearted one, O one whose soul feels really low, you should know that Jesus is not just a lion, He's a lamb who stood and died in your place, who suffered a gory death, that you might have that promise for you, that He is near to you in your broken-heartedness. And so how do we apply it, friends? How do we apply that Jesus is both lion and lamb? What does that look like? Well, It matters how we go to Him and it matters how we imitate Him. First of all, Him as a lion and Him as a lamb. Him as a lamb, it speaks to our personal weariness. And Him as a lion, it speaks to our longing for greatness. Let me me make it plainer. When you are weary... Under the blood of Jesus shed for you, He says, come to Me. All who are flat out exhausted, is that you? All who are weary and spiritually heavy burdened, come to Me. He calls you to come to Him. And He will give you rest and peace for your soul. If that's you today, come to Him because He is a Lamb. But He's also a lion-like lamb. For believers, you are not meant to run from Him in terror. You are meant to come to Him in awe and because you were crafted to adore greatness. You were crafted to stand in awe of majesty. Why do you watch certain sports? Why do you watch certain people do great feats? Because you love to see greatness. Why do you love certain types of music? Yes, because you like the way it sounds, but also the the wonder and the goodness, so to speak, of those musicians. Why do you stand in awe of hurricanes and tornadoes and volcanoes? Because you were crafted to stand in awe of something greater than yourself. Why do you go to the mountains? Why do you go to the beach? Why do you look out at an ocean? Because you are small and God is great and you are meant to praise Him for His greatness. Every single human soul longs to stand and adore greatness. And because Jesus is both a lamb, but He's a lion-like lamb, He is glorious and wonderful. And so, you might say, yeah, He's mighty. He's strong. As we fear Him for His might, we also love Him for being so mighty. As we fear Him for being just we also love Him for being so just. As we fear Him for being in control and knowing all things, we also love Him because He's in control and knows all things. We were crafted for greatness and we are meant to love something greater than ourselves. He is a lion and He is a lamb-like lion. That's how we go to Him. We go to Him in our weariness and we go to Him for what our souls long for, majesty and something greater than ourselves. But also, how do we imitate Him? How do we live in the everyday? How does Jesus being lion and lamb matter for how we walk in the everyday? Well, First of all, I think we can imitate him as a lion. What might that look like? Well, I thought about it in terms of parenting. Maybe this will help with the uh, analogy. Parenting is this wonderful mix. It's supposed to be a firm word and yet a tender and loving heart, right? Um, Love that corrects. Um, That's what's supposed to... Uh, be also accompanied by a love that comes alongside. So last night, we told our uh, little three-year-old uh, to go to bed. His name is Justice. And I don't know if you know many three-year-olds, but three-year-olds in general, they're just pretty cute, okay? They, can't, they don't have English down really well, and so everything's kind of choppy, and they make you smile when you look at them. At least they do me. Um, and so... We were looking at our cute little boy and we said, okay, let's go upstairs. And he says, no, I'm going to clean up with Shia first. That's not okay in my house. Why is that not okay? Why is that not okay? Is it okay for us when God gives us a command to say, no, not right now? No, it's not. And our whole role, especially in the first seven or eight years, is just to communicate loving authority. That what we say should be done. Because if they begin to trust you and your boundaries, then they will be able to transfer that in trust for God. And so, my wife was the one that gave the command. She stopped, which is first sign of good parenting, having to stop what you're doing. It's one of the hardest things in the world because you've got so many things you're trying to do. Stop what she was doing. And she gets down on his level and looks at him in the eyes. Step two, eye contact. And she grabs his arm, not with anger, like that, but a sense of, this is clear, we're having a discussion. And as she looks at this... Precious little boy who is now having a little bit of shaking, you do not tell mommy and daddy no. You obey mommy and daddy. Yes, yes, mommy. Yes, mommy. And he's just, you know, is fear okay? Yes, it is. You say, oh. How dare you say that? Do you want them to be afraid of a car that runs in the middle of a street? Yes, you don't want them to run out there. What about a hot stove-eye? Do you want them to just be casual about that? No. And you do not want them to be casual towards the commands of God, and therefore you're a direct reflection when they're that age. And so, we look at that little boy and we say, now let's try again. Mommy said, let's go upstairs. You say, yes, mommy. Yes, mommy. And he runs up those steps. Is that okay? It sure is. I think it's how we imitate our lion-like lamb of a Savior. We do that when it comes to what He's asked to do. We do that when it comes to hitting others. That's not okay. Does that mean that my kids won't hit other people? No. They hit each other and we have to discipline them for it. This doesn't produce perfect children. By the way, what we hope is it produces faithful ones. Ones that trust in Jesus. And that will affect their behavior. We do it for lying. We do it for disrespect. But after we instruct, friends, we go up. We might give it some time, but we hug and we kiss and we play. I promise you this. There are more tender moments, more lamb like moments than there are lion ones. Moments of prayer, moments of reading books, moments of playing together, moments of laughing, moments of dance parties, which hey, I invite you to, but they've usually just are our family. <laughs> Eating favorite foods. These are moments of tenderness. But if you do not demonstrate lion-like lamb qualities, you will be one, controlled by your kids. Your kids who are foolish until Christ invades their lives will begin to determine what is right and wrong in your home. And most importantly, they will not understand this tension about their glorious Savior that He's both lion-like and lamb-like. We must have a love that overlooks offenses, but we also must have a love at times that speaks a firm word of correction, not just as parent to child, but as brothers and sisters in Christ, so that we might run from sin and run to our lion like lamb of a Savior. Now, some are tempted to view him as only a lamb. A lamb who is really tender and gentle and forgiving. And I want you to see him as that, especially you who are battling with self condemnation. Please see him as that. But When we do not tremble at our blatant disregard for the Word of God, when we lust for people and possessions instead of fighting against that kind of sin, and we casually throw the banner up, oh, God will forgive me, then we are missing the glories of our Savior. That forgiveness cost Jesus His life, and it was a gory death so that we might be forgiven. May we not be casual with our sin. May we hate it Because the lamb-like vulnerability of the sacrifice of Jesus was the only thing that protects us from the wrath that we deserve. So how can we imitate Him as a lamb? What did a lamb do? He gave His life as a ransom for many. And so I just ask you this question. To love like a lamb loves, at least like the lamb Jesus loves, means vulnerable sacrifice. And I just want to ask you one question. What does that look like for you right now? Maybe a name will pop into your mind. Maybe a face. Maybe a context like work. What does a lamb-like love look like for you right now? And when you do it, don't do it to earn His favor. Do it to imitate the Savior. Do it because He's worthy. Do it that He might be adored in your heart and in the lives of others. You stand in awe. I'm going to end with a prayer because I think this is the last way to apply this. And it is, when I spend time with brand new believers, I go through seven things. Take one week for each thing and we just spend about an hour and then they go and they read some scriptures about it and we come back and talk about it. and. The second thing that I talk about after the Word of God is prayer. And we go through just this little thing called the Acts of Prayer. A-C-T-S. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. Now, I don't do that because that's the only way you can pray. If you don't do all four of those things, you have not prayed. I do that because so many people, they don't know where to begin when they pray. So I say, just talk to God. Prayer is a relationship with God. But if you're kind of stuck, maybe you can use those four things as a means to commune with God. But one thing that is probably most lacking is the A, adoration. And what this is meant to do in our hearts is meant to lead us to adore Him as a lamb and a lion. So I just want to pray and I just want to adore Him with you and then we'll take the Lord's Supper together. So let's pray together. Father, I thank You that You are both a lion and a lamb. And I adore You because You are our authority. Your commands are our good. I adore You because You are strong. And I am so weak. We need You, O God. I adore You for Your strength. I adore You because You have no lack. You are strength. You're at the top of everything. There is no greater champion, no higher being. You are our all in all. And we want to live for You. Lord, we adore You because of Your greatness. And we adore You because You are like a lamb. You are forgiving. And You forgive us of our wretched sins, though we deserve lion-like wrath. Oh God, I pray that we would adore You as a majestic lion, and we would adore You as a lamb who is patient with us when we fall. I adore You because You shed Your blood for us that we might have life, and that we might have a hope like we've never had before. I adore You because You are King Jesus, a lion-like lamb who comforts us, who extends severity, severity to enemies, and yet great power to deliver your promises that we might be saved and rescued from that. So God, now as we sing, I pray that you would get glory in our hearts. And I ask that as we take the Lord's Supper, you would meet us in a powerful way and we might be able to approach you as the glorious lion and lamb and imitate you by the strength that you supply. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. We're going to take the Lord's Supper. And this time is a time when you just either come to him as a sinner in need of massive forgiveness and you just confess in your own heart to him, I need your forgiveness. You could come to him as a lion and a celebration that he has conquered all things, that he has helped you this week, that he has been near to you. Whatever it is, this Lord's Supper is for you. It's a time to come to him as a lion and a lamb. So maybe it's forgiveness. Maybe it's celebration. Maybe it's adoration. Whatever it is, if you're a believer in this room, this time is meant to be a prayer and a relating to God together. And so when you are ready, you can get up and you can go and get the bread and the cup, either at these two tables or one in the back, and take it back to your seat. And you can eat and drink. As a means of declaring, I align myself with Jesus and I need Him today. If you're not a believer today, I want you to hone in on this. That anyone who calls on the name of the Lord can be saved. Cry out to Him today. He can rescue you. And so use this time not to take of the Lord's Supper. For there are warnings for those who take it without being a believer in Christ. But this time is for you to call out to Him. To know Him. So now, let's take the Lord's Supper together as a family.